0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, a step forward on healthcare. And Richard, we have seen for months now uh, President Trump – And Republicans in Congress stymied in their efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. That doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. So the president has now swooped in and taken action on his own on a couple of fronts, but starting with an executive order that is going to make some changes to the functioning of American health care markets. So why don't we just start with the basics? Start us off by just explaining what he's doing with this executive order and, and whether, in your judgment, it's worthwhile.
1: I think these are huge changes, and I've long been a proponent of this strategy. The first thing to remember is when you look at Obamacare... Uh, the statute sets out a basic framework, but within that framework, there are all sorts of bits and pieces that have to be filled in, and there's an enormous level of discretion as to whether or not you aim high or whether you aim low, whether you put conditions on or take them out. And so, for example, the whole battle over the contraceptive mandate was not a sanction of the statute. It was a function of uh, an executive order or a regulation that were put into place by Obama. And so when you're looking at this, what you do is you say, if I'm trying to get rid of this particular framework, it's going to be very difficult to get it out because the Democrats won't go along. And there's always going to be one Republican, call him Rand Paul, who says you're not pure enough. And then there's somebody who says you're going much too far, no consensus, call him John McCain. And then you would get in somebody else like Susan Collins, and all of a sudden everything just disappears. So what you have to do is to look at the discretion, which Obama always dialed up, and you have to turn around and dial it down. And the great achievements of the Trump administration, as far as I'm concerned, are from the fact that he's eased up on enforcement, which essentially is something that nobody can reverse by any kind of action. You cannot force the president to sue people if he doesn't want to. And also he has no new legislative initiatives that promise the same kind of dislocation, as we got with the banking law and with the uh, situation on the ACA and with the American Invents Act. So these things essentially means that the legislative function is quiet, and even if the tax stuff doesn't go through, uh, still things are not going to be all that bad. And on Obamacare, what he decided to do is, to the extent consistent with the law, and there's a lot of room there, is to try to make the system much more complex. Competitive. And I wrote an article with a man named David Hyman some years ago, widely ignored, which said that the virtues of a system are the increase in competition and choice. And so if you look at a system which is partially regulated, there are two ways to go. One is to add more regulations in, at which point you're always going to have to add in more subsidies to help those people who can't comply with the cost of the regulation. And that's very expensive on both the regulatory side and on the subsidy side. Well, what you could do is you could back off on this thumb and deregulate that lowers administrative costs and increases essentially the options and the degrees of uh, competitiveness. Uh, Obama made the fatal choice to ratchet everything up. And Obama is basically making a very conscious choice to ratchet everything down because he talks about the benefits of competition and choice in the opening phrases of the executive order.
0: One of the constant criticisms of efforts to specifically deregulate the plans that insurers can offer is that consumers will wind up with insurance coverage that's so narrow that it will be essentially useless to them, that at that point it's not really much of a safety net. How How do you respond to those kinds of accusations?
1: Well, I think what you have to do is to look at the way in which people have responded to the current plans and you can make exactly the same response. Obamacare, what it does is it fixes the level of benefits that you have to get, those things which are called essential benefits, and it sets them at a very high level. Uh, So it's essentially telling everybody in the automobile market, you want to go in there, we'll give you a choice between a Lincoln and a Cadillac and a Mercedes-Benz, but those Toyotas and those Chevys, forget about it. They're inferior stuff you don't want. So you put it up at that height. And now the companies cannot possibly charge premiums, even with subsidies that cover the cost. so they have to find other ways to save. And what do they do? Well, the two major strategies are to increase deductibles, so they could be $6,000, dollars 8000 or more for a family, and reduce the choice of physicians that you can get under the plan. And to most people, if you have a high deductible and little choice with respect to your doctor, that's a partial repeal of the plan. It's skinny in a way that you don't like it. And so most people, if they were given a fixed number of dollars and told the way in which they had to allocate it, would prefer to have probably somewhat lower deductibles, or not trivial ones, you don't want that, and greater physician choice. Uh, so essentially they've been deprived already. And so what's going to happen is if you go the other way, you're not going to have situations where men are going to have to require prenatal care with respect to their comprehensive uniform insurance package Uh, and you're not going to get a lot of other exotic stuff like habilitative care which nobody knows what it means so one rough rule of thumb in all of these cases is you look to those things for which there is no viable market at any level in the uh, voluntary spaces and if you don't find anything that's offered there you don't want to put it into these programs Obamacare made exactly the opposite choice in administration they put all this stuff in and since they didn't didn't have any market reference they had to make it up themselves as to what the benefits would be and that's part of the problem that drove up the particular costs in question uh, so it's always going to be a thinner plan than you want because the only way you could get huge coverage and no deductibles and lots of choice is to pay the amount of money which is not in the public or private treasuries and then the question is who has better knowledge about figuring out which things ought to go by the wayside and which ought to be kept And the answer is it's going to be uh, the patients, it's going to be the physicians, it's going to be the advisory groups. One of the things about the Obamacare stuff is they're wrong coming out of the box because they always assume that anytime somebody takes a plan which is less valuable than the one that they already had, that they are basically ignorant. And so what they do is they constantly keep the maximum formula in place and then see everything else fall to pieces. People dropping out of the system, the deductibles rising, the physician choice is changing and so forth, and the company's actually losing money. It's a rare feat. You had a private market out there, which was in many ways smashed. And what it did is it provided stable coverage for people and turned a profit. Now you've got this new program in place and it requires a huge subsidy and it still can't turn a systematic profit. So some guys are closing out of the business. And so what happens under this current situation, if you've got four insurers in a given market and three leave... Now, the fourth guy has got a monopoly position, and that may be strong enough to offset for him the inefficiencies of the plan. So always beware when you hear physicians, hospitals, and insurance companies insist upon guaranteed payments. This is not a statement of what the market requires. This is a statement of people who become accustomed to and happy with subsidies and don't want to see them disappear.
0: As Republicans have pivoted this year to being in the driver's seat and having to come up with something of an affirmative vision for healthcare, one of the aspects of Obamacare that many of them seem to have reconciled themselves to is the need to cover preexisting conditions. But you said in a recent piece for Defining Ideas – that you don't think that that's nearly such an open and shut case. Explain that.
1: Well, I've always been against this because what happens is the way in which you cover it is by regulation, and what the regulation, in fact, says is you don't have any waiting periods to be get in there. And you don't have any minimum periods that you have to stay once you join. Uh, So what happens is people have private information about whether or not they need health care, which the plans don't have. And the traditional view was that you always had to disclose that to the insurance company so it could figure out the premium to charge or whether or not to decline the risk. When you do it in this particular way, the gamesmanship is simply enormous. So what happens is people stay out of the plans, they then join, they get their major surgery, two weeks later they're gone, and what happens is they pay a very small premium to get a very large benefit, and this means that everybody else has to pick up the tab. Now there's nobody who's foolish enough to say that you don't want to cover pre-existing conditions at all, but the question is what sort of intermediate positions can you in fact take? And traditional markets would say, yes, we're going to cover you, but we will exempt you with respect to certain conditions, not everything else. And in fact, we may say we're going to exempt you for the first 90 days and then let you back in. And then when we sell you the policy, we're going to say you have to take it for a year or pay some kind of cancellation penalty, which covers up for our loss, And that form of multiple flexibility is vastly superior to what we have in the other situation. And when you do this, it means that opportunism goes down by some, which means that the need for cross-subsidies goes down, which means that other people not having to pay for the insurance that they don't use themselves, but for somebody else, are going to be more willing to stay in the plan. What you have to understand is, if in fact you eliminate cross-subsidies, people don't care whom they're in a plan with. They know they're getting a package of benefits, which they think is worth more than their premium. The moment you have the cross-subsidies, the pools become unstable, and that's why you see so many young people, those who are healthy, opting out of a program where they know other people are going to game the system. And besides, they also know if they have to get in because they, something happens to them, they can sign in selectively. So what they do is they avoid payment in the periods where they're not likely to get benefits, and then they go in when they're likely to get huge numbers. And they've got to be a billion different solutions that are better than the one that the the Obama people started to pick, and it's because they don't know how to make trade-offs at the margin, and that's what running an insurance company is always about.
0: One of the things that the president has been enthusiastic about for a while, and this executive order touches it, is the ability to sell health insurance across state lines. and That's been a pretty popular proposal on the right for a while, but not all conservatives are in favor of it. There are some who object to this on federalism grounds and ask, well, why shouldn't the states have the right to make their own regulations about the kind of insurance plans that are offered in their markets? What's your response to that? Well, first
1: of all, generally speaking, federalism is a two-edged sword. Uh, To some extent, when you have local government and then people sell into the export market, federalism manages to encourage competition across state lines. But that presupposes that a company in one place can do business in another state without facing discrimination from the locals. It's also a possibility that if you give strong states rights, you get Fortress America or Fortress California. Nobody else can come in, and now what you're doing is you're creating monopolies. So behind that monopoly wall, what will take place is few insurance companies will come. They'll charge high rates. Uh, The Certificates of Convenience and Necessity, which are very common, will create monopoly power, because what you can do is block the next guy from coming in when the first guy is there. And to the extent that the federalist impulse is a monopoly creation impulse, you have to greet it with a great deal of suspicion. To the extent that federalism is designed to break down these barriers, you greet it with a great deal of enthusiasm. And federalism has always had this two-sided story. And generally, one of the great achievements of the United States Constitution through its judicial interpretation, is the so-called dormant commerce clause. And what that means is that a state cannot put up barriers to foreign companies that make it more costly for them to do business by way of regulation than for the locals. And so the correct rule is essentially one, at least as a default provision, where you have to have non-discrimination between you and the outsiders. If, of course, the federal government authorizes the barricades to go up, it seems to be the case, then, in effect, the dormant commerce clause doesn't play in, because now it's uh, congressional supremacy, which is the dominant theme. But as far as I'm concerned, the president is absolutely right to open these things up. And what it does is it undoes part of the deal, which should have never been made in the first place. Uh, Back in 1993 when Clinton was trying to put his plan together, he didn't hold out any real inducements to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and they saw this as a huge disadvantage. But if you know that you're going to get guaranteed sales, as the pharma industry to some extent gets, and you're going to get these exclusives on insurance, then the monopoly elements take place and they'll back the program. The only guys who didn't join in – turned out to be the device manufacturers. They got hit with a 2.3% excise tax, which turns out for startups to be really quite huge. And that whole industry went into disarray. Uh, So if you get rid of all the special deal-making that got the Obama plans into place in the first instance, then in effect you may return to markets and the very companies who now have exclusive positions will decide, hey, all the barriers are down, I have to go into some other state as well, and you'll get much more coverage. Right now, there are many places in which there's only one insurance company that is offering ACA benefits and a lot of companies that are pulling out. So this is a very welcome development and this should have taken place a long time ago and should take place whether or not the rest of the president's program goes into place.
0: The other healthcare issue that's become controversial of late is the president's threat to cut off these subsidies that are called cost-sharing reductions. These are the payments that the government makes to insurers to offset some of the costs for some of their lower-income customers. And this has been portrayed in the past couple of days as an effort by the president to sabotage Obamacare or uh, to go after the poor. And while I'd be interested to get your take on the substance of the policy, what I'd actually like you to address first is the legal aspect of this, which has been somewhat underreported. There is a legitimate controversy as to whether these payments are actually constitutional. Well, actually, I don't
1: think there's much of a controversy. I think it's pretty clear that they're not. Uh, There are multiple programs. Some of these programs have permanent authorizations, but the cost-sharing reductions that you're talking about have to be appropriated on an annual basis. Uh, The big issue that took place before... Uh, the district court in this situation, Rosemary Collier, uh, was the question as to whether or not the House of Representatives had standing to challenge the illegality of the payments. And this is a peculiarity of modern standing law, which doesn't give every citizen the power to challenge a statute, which is ultra virus, that is, has no constitutional authorization. She allowed the company to go forward. And I think just about everybody knew that the moment they got standing, the case was over. The statutes were perfectly clear, but the Obama people deliberately did was to conflate two separate statutes the one with the permanent authorization and the one with the temporary authorization and she said you can't do it i think she made a serious mistake one which she said was she was going to suspend the suspension of this particular um bank that is she's not going to stop it she was going to let the case go out on appeal well you're now a smart government lawyer and you know that the longer you keep this appeal from taking place the more you can keep your subsidies in place If she was as confident as she was that the plan was wrong, what she should have done is in effect say, I'm going to give you 60 days for an emergency appeal and then the appellate court is going to have to extend it. And if she had done that, then the president would not have been put into this position. So in a sense, I think that the correct response was for Trump to absolutely do this because the payments are clearly illegal. There's not a decent argument that I have seen raised on the other side about this uh, to attack her on the merits. And interestingly enough, if you're the president and nobody has standing to challenge it in the courts and you know it's unconstitutional, you should still stop it. Uh, The president also has a duty to enforce the Constitution. It's not only the federal courts. And now Congress could come back and try to run the appropriations on this, but to my mind, that's also very dangerous because what happens is if you put the full appropriations back, there's going to be very little incentives to reform the way in which the health care packages are organized and delivered, and you're back to the old status quo ante, which is essentially in the long run quite unstable.
0: Final question that i ask you, Richard. Conservatives spent most of the Obama years, especially during the second term, lamenting the president's proclivity to govern via executive fiat. And you actually saw with some anti-Trump conservatives similar notes being sounded about this healthcare executive order … Uh, Explain to us why they should feel differently about the way that President Trump is using executive orders. Well, it has to
1: be at least in this case because what happens is he's using it within an area which is not in explicit conflict with what the statute said. I mean the first thing to note in this particular case is he said if there are some limitations on what you can do in this particular case that are imposed by law, the executive order is not supposed to override that. Uh, The lawyers who drafted this thing actually did a pretty careful job. The other thing, for example, uh, that happens is in many cases what uh, Trump is going to do is to take Obama regulations that reduce the freedom within the system and restore it to the pre-Obama executive order. So, for example, there are questions as to whether or not you could get transitional skinny health care plans, and it used to be you could get them for a year. Obama shortened it by uh, various decrees to uh, three months. Well, whatever device he used to shorten it could be used to expand it back to the original time. And it's important to understand that these skinny plans are much thinner than the essential standard packages. And if you allow them to exist for a year and then renew them, that's exactly the same pattern that you have with respect to the ACA. Uh, So I don't want this president to do something that's illegal, but as I mentioned at the outset of the hour... Huge numbers of the things that were done by Obama were essentially discretionary, not mandated by the statute, and he essentially decided to rule in the short term by executive order, thinking that Mrs. Clinton would take over after he left. Well, he's wrong, and if you don't get this thing embedded in legislation and you do it by executive order, they're one of two things. If you did it illegally, you should be smacked down, and if you did it legally... But the other position was also legal, and then what happens is it could be reversed. Things like this are very important, and this is one of the key elements, for example, on an entirely related subject that deals with such things as the Iran situation and with the Paris Accords with respect to energy. If you do them by something shorter than legislation, you may get the freedom of action, but you lose any systematic permanence you're doing. And the same thing will apply to Trump and should apply to Trump.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember that you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of The Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.